I've talked before about the effect reading poetry has on my brain. How it untangles the knots of creativity when I read it, particularly right before I go to sleep. How it sends my creative mind into swirling, sleepy spirals of words. I recently came to realize that paintings have a similar impact on me. In recent years, I developed a love of museum meandering, planting myself in front of Rothko and letting those reds wash over me. But it's been Van Gogh's work that has been like stepping into a poem. I never studied art, so discovering this work as an adult feels like a gift. Walking around Amsterdam's Van Gogh Museum with the audio tour providing context as the paintings tell his story in chronological order, ending on Wheatfield with Crows, his, his stunning final work. His paintings are poetry for my entire being. It was inevitable that he would pop up somewhere in my writing eventually, and when he did recently in a play I was workshopping, we fell into a discussion on the intersection of mental health and the life of an artist. An intersection where Vincent van Gogh was firmly perched for his entire career. As we talked, an actor mentioned the film At Eternity's Gate by Julian Schnabel and starring Willem Dafoe as Vincent himself. They implored me to watch it, and when I did, I felt an even deeper connection to van Gogh. This painter working amongst many other artists with more successful friends barely selling any of his own work. Vincent says in the film, I paint with my qualities and my faults. That's what we do, right? All of us. Our particularities that make us us. Our qualities and faults. I paused the movie on that line. I had to note it. I needed to keep it forever. In this film, Vincent was steadfast in creating his work despite barely being able to survive and lacking any sort of recognition or success from a monetary perspective. His more successful friend Gauguin tells him to paint the way things look, and he refuses. He just kept painting the world as he saw it. Later in the story, Vincent is in what can be described in today's terms as a mental health facility in southern France. He is talking about his paintings to a priest and he says, My art is for people who haven't been born yet. And holy moly, did this frame my own artistry in an entirely new way? It's funny looking at my writing through the lens of a filmmaker, through the lens of a painter, a Russian nesting doll of artistic points of view. I always thought about my writing being for people who speak its particular language and when my work encounters those folks, it will find its life. And now I understand that this particular language itself is not yet fully formed and those who speak it might not be born yet. And so I write, just as Vincent painted, the world as I see it, for those who one day will need to untangle knots in their brains and be sent into swirly, sleepy spirals of their own. and future friends. This is the Subtext Podcast, and I am Brian James Polak. Each month in the Subtext, I speak with a playwright about their writing, their life, and whatever else might come up when two playwrights get together. This month, I share a conversation I recorded with Tylee Scheider. Tylee is the inaugural playwright-in-residence at Art Yard. He is a 2022-23 McKnight Fellow in Playwriting at the Playwright Center. He is a recipient of Premier Stage's Liberty Live Commission. He received two consecutive Jerome Fellowships and is the I Am Soul Playwright-in-Residence at the National Black Theater. Recent projects include the fall 
of 2022 New Jersey premiere of Certain Aspects of Conflict in the Negro Family at premiere stages, The Gospel Women at National Black Theater, and Whittier at Playwright Center. He holds a BA in journalism from Delaware State University and an MFA in dramatic writing from NYU. Tylee is a proud member of the Dramatist Guild and is currently a professor of playwriting at Augsburg University and a staff writer for Minnesota Playlist. Before we get into the conversation, I want to give a little shout out and thank you to the Drama Bookshop in New York City. They let us co-opt a couple comfy chairs in the corner of the shop to record this conversation, right next to a very popular and noisy musical theater shelf. This wasn't recorded with an audience, but we did have a lot of people walking by wondering what these two dudes were doing with microphones in the corner. It was a good time, and I appreciate the John Bookshop for being so accommodating. This is my conversation with Tylee Scheider, recorded in the bookshop in July of 2023. I love that we were doing it in the drama bookshop. It made it so exciting for me. Yeah. Like, Same here. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> when I, I got to town on Saturday, and I couldn't check into my hotel until 4. So uh, uh, my hotel's like, you know, three blocks down the road. So I sat, and there's a table in the corner back there. And I was just sitting there, and, uh, and, uh, and I just I was like, oh, well, I'm here. I went and asked that person sitting at the information desk over mm-hmm. there I was just like I was like hey I'm a playwright from out of town and uh, and I'm doing this thing with another playwright from out of town like we don't have a home base here I was like yeah. can, can we do it here and they were like cool yeah no problem and they put these little reserve signs on these chairs and I was like sweet thanks because this, this is like where it's at right the drama shop yeah they were they were not concerned about like disturbing the readers and the people who come in here and write no i think they were concerned about us being disturbed by, by the all the traffic going on around us yeah. yeah yeah and i think that's part of why they put us in these chairs because there's like tables and seating over on the other side of the room right and it might be might be more disruptive for those folks over there yeah but yeah, There's she was. She was just like, "Are you gonna? Be, is like, is it gonna be okay? Just sort of out in the open?" And I'm like, "I think it's cool. Like, is, if it's cool with you, yeah, yeah, like it's cool with me." There's enough distance between us and the people, yeah, who are working. Yeah, 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 and yeah. Uh, it's super distracting. Like, I'm constantly, as I'm talking to you right now, I'm constantly like looking at like, yeah, you're looking who's come around the corner and yeah, and I think people are gonna like see what we're doing and be like, "What is this?" Yeah, who are these two guys? What are they doing? What's going on? It's really bad. If this were a date, I would think you had wandering eyes. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I can't trust this guy. <laughs> yeah, this is a bad... This would be a bad... Imagine if your first date was a podcast. <laughs> Not good. I took my brother out for his birthday on Sunday, and he was like, I think you have wandering eyes. Your wandering eyes are offending me, and we're related. <laughs> I was like, damn. Do you think you have wandering eyes? I think I'm a... I'm a I'm an observer. I'm a, yeah. I'm a I'm a writer. I'm a natural observer. So I don't like to call it people watching, but I am observing my yeah. surroundings, and not because of fear or anything, but because I'm genuinely interested in what's happening around me, and it has created relationship I mean relationship problems, and I'm like, but this is really who I am. Yeah, you know, I I feel that I feel that, and I was thinking about this exact thing. Um, Earlier, when you arrived, you saw I was sitting yeah. up at the front window there, and I had been sitting there for a couple hours uh, writing, mm-hmm. and I moved to that seat because I actually felt like the um, the street view and people walking by, it helps me yeah. like watch yeah. because I'm constantly like, I'm looking up from the computer. And I'm just like seeing who's walking by, seeing the action that's happening. And I, for some reason, it helped me when I was I was sitting at a table and all I could look at was a bookshelf. 
I'm like, ah. That's not enough. Nothing. You need happened. more stimulation. I needed stimulation. Yeah. And, uh, and I think I'm like you where like, I'm constantly like looking around, but it's yeah. like, it's not like nefarious. Right. It's just <laughs> like, it's like a form of like sedentary FOMO. Like you're not trying to go out or anything, but you just have the fear of missing people walking by. <laughs> I think my brain, my brain needs stimulus to stay focused. I think. Interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting like dichotomy. Yeah. 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 But you, yeah. but, but for you, it's more like it's the same. I think. It's yeah. The, it's the exact same. Yeah. You're trying to find this particular solitude that would also give you an opportunity to observe so much traffic and activity around you but you need to be still like, yeah and it helps you to be still yeah yeah something like that i don't know yeah and it, i mean maybe it's a uh maybe everybody's like this maybe a lot of people are like this but i i think there's something about being a writer yeah and and uh taking stuff in like i'm constantly taking stuff in i'm not necessarily taking note of right. it right but it's coming into my brain and it, it somehow will become something one day. Like mm. at least if I ever write something, I have a sense of like the action of the sidewalk of New York City because all the times I've been here, uh, I haven't witnessed anything specific that mm. I remember, but I have a strong sense of the action of the sidewalk because I've just sort of constantly taken it in from different angles and and it's now there if I need to access it. Yeah. You know? There's a subconscious notation going yeah. on. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 I guess while we're still young, we can do do it that way. <laughs> the older you get, <laughs> the more you start writing it down. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like you're filling it up. Right. And then you get to a point and it starts to like yeah. go to empty. <laughs> when I was in my 20s, I could like think of an entire synopsis or a poem or a song, memorize it. And not even write it down until I was at my computer or at my notebook. Nowadays, I have to write it down immediately because it's gone. Yeah. You know, like, it's, I've, I've been through too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's yeah. not happening. Yeah. 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 Uh, so you said you said you, uh, you went out with your brother for his birthday the other day. Yes, I took him out for dinner on Sunday. So does he, does he live locally? Yeah, he lives in New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Are you from Jersey? I'm from New Jersey. Oh. Yeah, Plainfield, New Jersey. Okay. Um, most of my plays are set in Plainfield, New Jersey. Okay. Very place-based. Um, not all of them, but many of them. Yeah. Um, but that's where I'm from. Yeah. 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 So because because I was uh, I was introduced to you by by Jeremy. Okay. At the Playwright Center. Jeremy Cohen. Yeah, Jeremy Cohen, who I interviewed on this podcast. Uh, that was one of my favorite interviews. Yeah. Because I, I follow the podcast, and I. I even though I knew Jeremy already, yeah, this is kudos to you because I learned so much about him on that podcast. Oh yeah, in terms of like his biography and where he came from, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's amazing, as you know. Yeah, uh, and he was like one of the only non-playwrights I ever talked to on this. But I just felt like he's kind of a playwright. He all he, he mean, writes a little bit. Yeah, he writes. <laughs> he's not. He's not not a writer, but also he's like not, not running the playwright center. He's like. Right. So closely associated with playwrights. He's like, a play. He's a playwright's doula, or, or yeah, an yeah, advocate, yeah. an advocate. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. Um, so, so anyway, I was saying, uh, I as because I got introduced to you f by Jeremy. I was associating you very much with Minneapolis because you were there four years for four years. Four years following grad school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I just placed you there. Like, yeah. That's that was like Tylee, Minneapolis. That's the association, and it just sort of like took hold. So not, not a bad association. <laughs> and I, I have th I have three more years of support at the Playwright Center as a core writer. So it'd yeah. be like seven consecutive years of support following graduate school. So I like the Playwright Center is like my continuing education home, and, and yeah, they were like my agents when I was trying to find an agent, like. I love that institution. Yeah. Really. Yeah. 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 They're fantastic. Um, I love, I love that it exists. I wish there were more playwright centers, you know, I wish there was a playwright center regionally, you yes. know, uh, uh, it would be incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe one day. 
It's far and few between. I, th- I think. I think. I know, but like, a, like a, there are plenty of like great playwright conferences that you know that pop up over mm. the course of like the summer in different areas of the country. But like, one institution that exists entirely in the support of playwrights and it's year round. It's mm-hmm. continuous. It's just like. Mm-hmm. It's incredible, and they they can only do so much. Right, and there are so many of us in the world, you know. Uh, and they have a diversity of fellowships, yeah, and opportunities. So that's that's the thing that that separates them from other institutions that supports playwrights, because you can go there and you can win a diversity of awards and actually matriculate from one fellowship to the next. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's a possibility to string you know? the, yeah, yeah just string out your time a little yeah, bit yeah, yeah. yeah i mean you do have, don't get me wrong you do have to apply and compete but there's the possibility is there you know mm-hmm. yeah so uh what was what was a you mentioned you have a brother do you have other siblings i am the oldest of six oldest of six i have three sisters and there's three boys so three Three of us, so we grew up in a house of eight, like the Black Brady Bunch. Okay. <laughs> Except for not a not a not a blended family, but okay, you know, okay, <laughs> three three. Black Brady Bunch. I love it. <laughs> so, so uh, what was like? Uh, what was growing up like in such a such a big family? Like, what was childhood like? What's the difference in ages from you to like your next youngest? I'm I'm the first, and my sister, who's right behind me, is three years after me. Okay. And then they're like stair steps after that, mm-hmm. and then right. the youngest. There's like a gap between, um, I believe, him and my youngest sister. So he's eight years younger than me. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the middle, there's stair steps, and then it's me and the oldest, me and the youngest. We're like bookending right. the family. Yeah. Um, and there's only gaps between us. But my mom and dad got busy in the middle. Yeah, in the middle years. <laughs> my, uh, I have an older sister who's two years older than me, and then uh, my mother remarried and had two with my stepfather. Mm. So I have two younger sisters who are thirteen and fifteen years younger than me. Yes. So it was like two different families almost because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was in high school when when they were born. Yeah. And my, so was my so was my older sister. Uh, so it was like uh, my mother did two sets of parenting, you know, because, you know, when you get a kid gets yeah, to yeah. become a teenager, it's not that you're done parenting, but a lot of the work is done and they're, you're kind of starting to set them on their own path. Mm. And so for, for my sister and I, it was like my mom was like, OK, you two. I'm done baking you. You need to go like finish off because I got to focus on these babies. So like as a sophomore, junior, senior in high school, I had babies in the house. So as like a young person, I was a younger person. I was like I became used to like changing diapers and babysitting Mm -hmm. and latchkey kids. So was I. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, But were were you like uh, are there other artists, writers in? In your family, amongst your siblings or parents? Yeah, well, my mom and dad are musicians. Oh, yeah? And my dad is a songwriter and a guitarist. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't pick up the guitar, but I did pick up his lyric book, is what I call it. He would walk around the house writing songs and playing them on his acoustic and, at that time, recording them on a cassette. Yeah, yeah. You know, trying to, you know, salvage the moment. And I basically learned how to write reading his, his lyrics and imitating what he was doing on the page. And so I started out writing songs. Yeah. And then eventually, um, I guess because I wasn't as gripped by music as him, my songs started turning into poetry. Mm-hmm. And I started to read my poetry in church and in school and things like that. And then short stories. And eventually it evolved into playwriting, you know. Can you can you talk about, um, like, I, I am not a poet, but I, uh, and I'm not a songwriter, but I, I write some poetry, and in some okay. of in some of my plays, there are moments that call for songs, and I want them to be original songs. So, I write like little poetic things, right? Like because mm-hmm. I don't know songwriting. Um, what is it? And you've gone the opposite direction, right? Like you knew songwriting, and then you went towards poetry. Mm-hmm. I tried to go towards songwriting, but couldn't. There's something about it that's so. I don't know. I can't wrap my head around it. Never studied it. Can you talk about the sort of like difference between what makes a song a song and 
poem a poem? I think for mu- you? music first. I think just adding music is one of the basic elements that makes a song different from poetry. Yeah. But I think that to me, I guess because of my journey, I think that a play is like the evolution of a poem. And not to say that it's superior than a poem, but it's just like you went into the poem and you added dialogue and you created a setting and you kind of like breathed life into it and opened it up, opened the poem up or the song up. Because I think that a song has all the elements of a great story. Mm -hmm. And I think because I trained myself writing songs and thinking of story in such with such little time, mm-hmm. it kind of lends itself to the to the brevity in my dialogue and in my plays. Because mm-hmm. for a while, I st- when I started off studying plays, I was reading like A Raisin in the Sun and A Cat on the Hot Tin Roof was one of my favorite plays. And, and these these are like mammoth plays. Right. And so I was like, I want to write a play like this, but it was like, I couldn't write that much <laughs> at yeah. first. And I think it was because my training, my storytelling training was through song. So I only could think in, bre- in terms of brevity. Mm. And so my plays were quicker and shorter. And I had to realize, okay, you just have a different style because of how you develop your skill for storytelling. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So uh, when you were writing, so I kind of started in a similar way. Like yeah. when I started writing plays, they were all really short plays, but I I, I did that intentionally. Okay. Like, I was like, a full-length play is too much for me to start with. I uh, I just I couldn't do it, and I knew I wouldn't even I couldn't even try. But what I could do is I could write a monologue, mm-hmm. right? So I started to write like monologues to, to under start to understand the voice of a character that's not me. Uh, and then a scene between two people. So then take two, uh, take a second character, throw them together, write a scene, and then the ten. You know, we have such a ten-minute play culture yeah. in our country. Like, that's what I got to was like, oh, okay, now I'll chew on the ten-minute play for a while, and that's where I learned how to write a play. Was in the ten-minute play form, and I cycled through a bunch of those, and and to develop a sense of how to tell a dramatic story mm-hmm. and uh, how to how a play presents on a page just kind of getting used to that kind of thing and then i was like oh oh yeah i think i'm ready i think i'm ready to like wrap my head around what a full-length play like what it takes to you know Mm -hmm. create something that's not 10 pages but like 80 90 pages long Mm -hmm. you know time my first play i think my first play it took me forever to get it to like 75 pages yeah and again, I was still reading Tennessee Williams, thinking I hadn't arrived yet. Like I, I'm not there yet. I yeah. haven't written. Yeah. But nowadays, nobody wants anything. Well, I shouldn't say nobody, but there's the 90 minute play crave. Right. For so sure. For sure. Yeah. Growing up in an era where I was consuming stories in less time, I think it kind of makes sense now that I have developed a sense in terms of writing a play within within 100 pages, as opposed to trying to write something like as long as a Tennessee Williams play or something like that. Because most contemporary plays that are up now, they're, they're intermissionless and yeah. they're, they're 90 minutes or yeah. less sometimes. So Back when you were reading yeah. Cat in a Hot Tin Roof and Raising the Sun, uh, do you remember like how old <laughs> you, you named were? those two plays? <laughs> no, you named those two plays. I know, plays. I'm saying the way you named them when you said it. Um, 17. So you're a teenager, you're in high school? I was in college. I was oh, my freshman college. year in college. My okay. first semester, I took a course called Modern Drama. And that course was like, uh, I think it was like a master class in terms of the American theater. Yeah. Just focused on the American theater. And it was such a great invitation because it didn't alienate me with those plays that I had read in English cor- class. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, like the Greeks and Shakespeare. Shakespeare it kind of yeah. invited me because we were reading Eugene O'Neill. And at the time, I think Susan Louis Parks was like the contemporary playwright of that year. Yeah. Um, that was 2005, and so we read all those plays, and it was really an invitation to me, and it made me think, because I was in school for journalism at yeah. first, and I still graduated with a degree in journalism, but that course really gripped me, and when I left that course, I took up theater as a minor, and I never looked back, and I think the thing that gripped me about theater was that it encompassed all of my literary interests, songwriting, investigation, uh, yeah. short storytelling, prose, everything was in it. And I was like, oh, this is something I should be doing because they're doing it all. And I think I learned that because 
we studied each playwright's biography. Uh huh. So you, I got to see how they got to their plays. Yeah. And I realized, oh, August Wilson was a poet first, you know. Lorraine Hansberry was an activist, et cetera. Tennessee Williams was a poet, you know. Yeah. Um, those things really gripped me. Yeah, I yeah. love that. I love the, uh, and I, I think besides Shakespeare, we don't really include that kind of contextual information around the study of a playwright. Like yeah. a lot of study around Shakespeare is the Elizabethan era and what's going on, his relationship to historical context and all that context. But I love that, yeah. that you were doing that in your class. I never, I don't think I studied much of the context around the lives of these writers yeah. when I was in school. We had to, we would read, a, we would read, the, read a play, then read this like, two to three page biography of the playwright and then we have to take a test mm -hmm. on both the biography of the playwright and the play and try to make some juxtaposition between their lives and the plays and so we did that for a whole semester and, and I left like totally yeah. converted <laughs> and the context yeah. helped you like, absolutely like yeah it helped me see myself as a writer and in, in, in which direction I should be going academically and professionally yeah you know yeah so how big a part uh is is music in your in your writing it's been there since the beginning since my very first play at delaware state university i was using because my parents recorded music when they were young and when yeah. i was growing up they were in bands and so i was always trying to find a way to use their music in my plays and my first play did that it was a yeah. play with music and even the piece i just did at the national black theater the gospel woman was a play with music. Yeah, and eventually, I read that play. You did? Yeah, it's e great. Eventually, thank you. Eventually, I stumbled upon like a bit of a, 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 a an aesthetic for it. Yeah. And I call it the rehearsal drama because I grew up in rehearsals and in studios and concerts. And so the backdrop to my life is rehearsal. Yeah. And so basically the rehearsal drama is just a domestic drama that unfolds at a musical rehearsal, which is the motif of my everyday life. And I've been trying to write that kind of play ever since my first play in undergrad. I think I've finally got gotten like the formula down now. So music what, is everything for so me. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Like what is, what is it that you uh, uncovered about this over time? I mean, I've uncovered, I think the, the sonic life of my plays. Mm -hmm. And like, what was I trying to do with music? I could write a musical because I'm I I I'm that invested in music, but I was trying to do something different. Yeah. And I was like, I'm trying to do something in between a play and music, and people would say, Oh, play with music. I'm like, Yeah, yeah, that. I, but I also know what people think of when they think of that. I'm thinking of something with a bit more music than even that. You know, like we're you're always hearing rehearsal music in the background of this domestic drama because uh -huh. this is a musical family or this is a musical community and they're always creating but right. life is always happening because that's how i grew up so i was always trying to capture that sonic world that i grew up in and i think i captured that in my play certain aspects of conflict in the negro family and the gospel woman which was mm -hmm. two plays that i dedicated to my mom and dad respectively and their music that they recorded so mm -hmm. yeah that's a good question though like what was i trying to capture I would say the sonic life of yeah yeah yeah. I mean, sometimes it's hard to like. Uh, sometimes you just know something when you know it. Yeah, and, and it's and intuitive, it's and it's hard to pinpoint. Yeah, but then sometimes, sometimes you can speak on it, right? Like sometimes you you recognize, I don't know precisely what happened and what the light how how the light bulbs are going off in yeah. your head. You know, it took me a while, because I can write songs. I I kept writing songs randomly, and my plays, and it was just like this isn't it, you know? And I was like, oh, there's something more, there's something else. I was doing that because I could do it, but you know, yeah, it took time. Yeah. I think in a lot <laughs> of ways you are uh, a playwright. I aspire to be <laughs> because uh, I have, I, I have the, uh, the, s the soul of music in, in my work, but zero capability of doing anything about it. Yeah. Like most of my plays have music of some sort, like an, in, an instrument is a central component to the play. Yeah. A, a character plays music in some way. And I have zero ability to actually like make it happen, <laughs> you know? So I have to call upon people in my life to like help me out. Get in, in there, in right? Collaborate. Situations. Yeah. 
yeah. think like the the major dramatic quest for me as a playwright, especially for those plays, is like how could I manipulate the music of my family into a plausible drama? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And I've been doing that for a long time. I think, yeah. Um, do do your do your parents uh, have they seen your work? Like, have they yeah. responded to it? Do they talk about it? They've been seeing it ever since I've been like creating skits for my siblings and I to perform in our bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what I'm saying? They and I think because my parents are creative, they took me seriously. And I think that's yeah. why I'm yeah. still doing it. But if if I had different parents, I don't know if I would still be doing it. But my mom she took me extremely seriously such that I would look at the yellow pages when I was about ten or eleven, I was writing a a novel tenor and i knew that i needed to get it published in order to be successful <laughs> so wow. i went into the yellow pages at 10 and i and i was <laughs> i had this manuscript and um i found a publisher and i said well ma i have to xerox my manuscript because i need my original copy right. and i need to send this to the publisher and i got my first rejection letter which was very encouraging because they said something along the lines of um we're not looking for this kind of material right now <laughs> And I don't know if they were being kind because they had to know I was 10 or 11 because it was right. this big writing or whatever. But it was <laughs> it was hefty. You know what I'm saying? But it was my first rejection. Right. Um, and it encouraged me because they didn't say no. They just said not right now. You know? Yeah. That's <laughs> that's that's kind of lovely uh, in the way that you received it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Because I do think you could. You could have received it in another way. Well, now I do. I receive it that way now when I hear that. <laughs> but I was 10. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah true that's true. a good juxtaposition yeah do you still have that letter i do not i wish i did and i wish i i still knew like which publisher i wrote to because yeah you know i mean nowadays publishing houses are folding left and right so i don't know who who that may have been yeah it may not exist yeah that was like in the 90s <laughs> yeah it may have been swallowed up by another publisher yeah. that was then swallowed up by another publisher absolutely yeah. if i got to them at 10 yeah <laughs> <laughs> So when you were uh when you were getting into theater at Delaware State like did you have somebody that was sort of like I don't know feeding you yes you know like read this or do this uh professor professors who were also the I guess you can call them the mentors of the theater department there yeah. which was very small it wasn't a theater school at all um Dr. Brown Dr. Donald Brown who was also a playwright and Dr. Donald Blakey, and a musical director who worked on the first play that I worked on, which was our college's rendition of Dreamgirls. His name was Eddie Cohey. And I name him because he's very important um, because I talked to him often because I was like his assistant when he was directing it. He always made it clear that I was the assistant to the director, not the assistant director. Right. Because I got into it. I was really serious about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> But I would always talk to him. I wanted to get my play up. I was so inspired by Dreamgirls. And I was like, this is what I want to do, something like this. My parents make music. I have all this music. I want to make something around their music. And and one day, he was taking me back to my dorm because he would drive me back across campus. He was like, let me just inspire you. What you need to do is you need to write a play. And you need to pitch it to the theater department. And you need to get them to produce your play on campus. No one's doing that here. You'd be like the only one doing it. They have the budget. And so I pursued that, and I got my first play produced on campus before graduating undergrad. And it was like for a weekend. It was the same weekend that of Obama's first um, what do you call it? inauguration when he was being yeah sworn in. Yeah. Um, that was the weekend of my first production on campus, and it was sold out. Everybody came and celebrated it because no one was doing that on campus. Yeah. So it was like really encouraging, like a standing ovation every night. I mean, the play was not great. But <laughs> well, sure. You know what I'm saying. But it had to be done. Yeah, right? it had to be done. It had yeah. To be done. I mean, I had curtains closing, and we were just pushing tears across. It was a lot going on. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. When when I was an when I was an undergrad, uh, I didn't know theater. Yeah, like, theater wasn't part of my life. And somebody, somebody on campus, uh, put on two one acts. And I was like, what are one acts? Oh, great. Like, I'm like, what's yeah. going on? Because we didn't have a theater. We didn't have theater classes at my school. It was just like this person just happened to have their own internal burning love of theater. And um, and they wrote something and they asked me to be in it. 
and I was like, sure, just because I'm your friend, right? Like, so yeah, I just, yeah. I just did it, but I, like, I wasn't an actor. I was none of these things. But uh, later, it was like it really sort of like stuck in my head that this person just made something happen. It was very much like if I was at yeah. your school, I would have been like, this person just made this. And they, it's like really inspiring and then like years later i become a writer but it was like years later and yeah. i'm like ah, oh, i wonder i wonder what if it inspired me to start doing theater back then yeah you know i would have had like a first friend a first theater friend and i yeah. would have got started uh in my in you know in my early 20s or in my teens uh, yeah. when these theaters when these uh, one acts happened but I love that you did that. Yeah. Thanks to Eddie, Eddie Kohi. I'm naming him because when I, when I looked him up to invite him to um, the gospel woman, which I know he would have been really proud of because yeah. it was like a culminating, you know, um, production that really was, was a seed that he planted, yeah. but he had passed away. And <sighs> I was just like, yikes. Yeah. Like, you know, you never get an, I never had an opportunity to show him like, you know, like that I didn't stop. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. I, you can easily stop pursuing theater. You can easily stop. But I didn't sure. stop. And it was and it was partly because of a seed he planted. Yeah. You know? So So when you so when you finished school and you had this degree in journalism, like in a minor in theater. In a minor in theater, like yeah. what 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 did you do coming out of school? Like what did post grad life look like for you? My parents are pastors, so the I had a privilege because I was coming home to um, a family who had like space for yeah. me to continue to exercise my gift as a playwright and I had an audience you know so I came home and I started to self-produce plays in the basement of the church yeah and again my parents took it seriously they, you know I started up my own little theater company I got an EIN number and stuff like that and you know I got into it um and, and again, that was encouraging because it led me to grad school. Mm-hmm. It actually led me to a local theater called the Theater Project in New Jersey, where I won my first, you know, uh, professional award yeah. for a short play, five hundred dollars. Yeah, which was enough to say keep going. Yeah, you know? and that led me to uh, NYU for grad school. Yeah. So how how much time passed from when you went home and started doing these these plays? Oh my gosh, probably. I mean, I, I I met my ex-wife and I had a whole marriage and everything, but I would say probably um, maybe seven years, seven to eight years, because I started. I got my license to teach theater, uh, K through twelve. Yeah. I was teaching at my old high school, and so that's how you were like sustaining. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Through teaching, through t- through teaching and trying to teach, because yeah. I was teaching and like writing plays on my breaks. And submitting plays to the Playwright Center and to the National Black Theater. I was into NYU and everything. But, you know, I, I did what I could. I inspired some students, some students who are actually in school for theater now. And I was like their first theater teacher. Yeah. Um, it, it probably was because I was so young and so messy that they were inspired by me. By yeah. me. <laughs> but, yeah. And you yeah. were, I mean, you were in it, too. Like, you were building your own it. career yeah. simultaneously. So it's not like you were a teacher coming to them after your decades of experience and sharing your wisdom. No. You're like learning in real time. Yes. Right? I was like 20 20 and 21 and 22 and 23. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was really young. And then the the inspiration that you had and the the sort of push you had from your your teachers and mentors in school that was still like... Fresh. It had just happened. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's great. But that, I mean, you really were plugging along for a while. Yeah, because I didn't get to NYU until like my late 20s. Yeah. Like 27, 28. So did it, did it, like what was that, that sort of like journey through your 20s like? Were you sort of settling into a life or were you thinking about um, one day going to grad school and you just didn't do it for a while? Or were you trying to get in and you weren't getting in? Like what was, what was happening in this interim period? Never settling in because I've always identified as a writer. Yeah. Because I because of my experience in college and being converted and becoming a playwright in college, I knew that I always wanted to do that and give back to college students. Yeah. So I knew I would be a professor and teach one day, but I didn't think I would teach so early. So I was never settling in. I was always in pursuit of something. 
right. in my tw- in my 20s and it wasn't so much like i must go to grad school it was like well what's next yeah so it was like my fellowship came up i was going to go there you know whatever happens next i just happened to get into tish and so i went to tish yeah but if i would have gotten a jerome fellowship at the playwright center i would have went there too you know yeah. it was just like what's next and, and again that's where the biography of a writer came in place i kept returning to the biography of august wilson and Susan Lloyd Parks and Terrell McCraney, those people, I was following what they were doing and, and pulling and creating my own blueprint for success. Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, so how were you, were you, when you were making these plays during this time before you went to Tish, did you have like, I don't know, like a group of folks that were like, you were working with or was it, uh, did you have people reading your plays and mm. like you know that you could when you when you wrote a first draft you could like call upon some actors like did you have a crew at the time i had advocates and staunch supporters of my my um career as a playwright and yeah. one of one of the, the the folks his name is othell miller he uh directed my play certain aspects of conflict in the negro family at premiere stages last season Mm -hmm. and that was a culminating opportunity for us to work together professionally because he had been such a cheerleader for my career and introducing me to actors and playwrights in the industry who encouraged me he introduced me to nicole salter Uh who has been like a big advocate and supporter of my work and to me even a mentor um she was important and the theater project is an institution again I, I must mention that's out of uh cranford they work out of cranford new jersey in maplewood they have two different homes mm-hmm. but they were like my home theater after um undergrad yeah so that institution my parents church and othell miller and those folks you know how did your work evolve over this time that's a good question well, here's the thing with me, though. I, when I was writing to get into Tish, I was trying to get into this, like, uh, I had watched um, John Ridley's American Crime on ABC. I consumed that, and I thought it was, like, great. I thought it was, like, this great representation of our country, and, like, it was in terms of diversity and, and all of the concerns that gripped me at the time. So that inspired me to write TV. Mm-hmm. And then when I looked up John Ridley and I saw who he was and his journey, he was a playwright at one point, too. And so, again, biography has always been the thing that's guiding me forward. <laughs> so I actually started to learn how to write TV. I brought this book called Crafty TV Writing by Alex Epstein. Uh-huh. Or Epstein, I may be saying it wrong. Um, but I swear by that book because it's the book that I taught myself how to write TV with. I wrote a... Um, spec of American Crime by John Ridley and then I wrote a spinoff for his Regina King character mm-hmm. and I wrote my own pilot and that was my portfolio for NYU so uh-huh. it wasn't plays I got into Tish for TV writing yeah and so how did it evolve I don't know but I know when I went to Tish the chair at the time Terry Curtis Fox um, he said he prides himself on and I'm paraphrasing Folks coming in as one discipline and leaving, loving another. Yeah. So I came in as a TV, but I left falling back in love with playwriting. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? At the time, yeah. were you were you thinking you were, were you intentionally thinking to shift careers? Like, okay, I started in theater. I started as a playwright. I'm going to take what I learned and now apply it to TV and become a TV writer. Is that what you? Is that where you were mentally at the time? I thought I was going to do it all. Yeah. I thought I was going to do it all, but I was I was going to go I was going to go wherever, you know, the, my career was leading me at the time. Yeah. You know, um, I was really gripped by TV at that time. But when I got to Tish, to be honest, American Crime got canceled, and I was devastated. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I thought I came to Tish to write American Crime. That was the goal. But yeah. Um, I, w- I was gripped by that. And I think here's the thing, though. I think that that was like me being like also like a playwright, because what gripped me about American Crime was that it was an anthology. And John Ridley was utilizing the same cast of characters, the same actors to tell these different stories with a different cast of characters every season. So yeah. it really is something theatrical about it that yeah. I was really interested in, you know, seeing Felicity Huffman 
as a different character every season. That's that's kind of theater. So yeah, it's like writing for an ensemble. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, uh, how, like, talk about talk about your uh, your experiences at, at NYU. What happened? What happened in those? What is it? Two years? Two years intense. Yeah, it was an intensive because again, the, the cheer at the time, and, and it it may change every time the cheer changes. But he again, he prided himself on um, creating dramatists. He wanted us to leave knowing how to do, being confident in every medium, film, TV, and theater. And so we had to take a certain amount of courses in theater and in TV and in film. And then we had to declare, uh, you know, a medium for our uh, senior thesis. So that was my experience. We were writing TV. We were writing film. I came out with a, a, f- uh, a three-act screenplay and a half. Mm-hmm. I came out with many plays because that's just my what I do. Not so much TV, surprisingly, because we had to write a lot of we we had to write specs and at least in the courses I took while I was at, at Tisch we had to write specs and the professors would have a list of TV shows you could select from none of which interest me so I ended up writing a spec for Better Call Saul not mm-hmm. that it's a bad show but it's not something that I would just at the time would jump into writing right um but you know so TV I kind of like fell back on in, in at Tisch and I got into film and and playwriting more yeah uh, so when you're writing these specs, you know, you seem, you just tell me if I'm wrong, but you seem like you have a very strong sense of, of, uh, who you are as a playwright and the way you incorporate music and what you want to write about and how you're, you, you've created this aesthetic, mm-hmm. right? Um, how do you apply these ideas and this voice that, that you have, uh, into like film and television right like because there's always like a little bit of a especially if you're writing Mm. specs like where do you find yourself in in these shows you know everything goes back to my love for media and then this this is going to go back to my childhood my parent my mother she owned a hair salon the first dozen years of my life and i was like her errand boy and again she took me serious so she allowed me to um start my first newsletter and open up a newsstand featuring my newsletters and selling them to her clients. And basically the newsletters was just me listening to her clients gossip and documenting what they said and drawing like little stick figures into comic strips and then selling it back to them. And I would make copies, Xerox them down the street, come back, staple them and sell it to them. It was, it was a little hit and it was my first time making money off of my storytelling. So I think the thing that connects, I'm saying that to say the thing that connects theater, film, and TV for me is the investigative sensibility. And that's why my journalism background is important because I'm just asking questions. And the same thing with when I'm writing about my parents' music, I'm interviewing them. I'm asking questions. It's all biographical stuff, but I'm still asking them questions. And so I approach film the same way. I have to have a question about whatever I'm writing, which is kind of general for writers but for me because of the investigative sensibility I'm doing this deep dive and I'm always doing a series of interviews before I start writing it doesn't matter which medium it is if I have a question about it I can adapt it into the into the medium mm-hmm. yeah uh, when you write something like a better call Saul spec are you finding ways to sort of embed my biography into it your, absolutely yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Um, I had to connect to the brothers and their relationship, because I have brothers, and I'm, my brothers are like my best friends, so, uh, so I had to connect to the brothers. And I and my spec was obviously about his relationship with his brother, the one that was a, like a um, agoraphobic, and he yeah. wouldn't leave the house. And that I was I played with that relationship and that and that that issue, yeah, that conflict. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you ever You're making me think way back because I'm like, <laughs> what did I write about when I? Wrote? <laughs> well, I I uh, I I. I don't know. Tell me if you do this in your writing. I will. Uh, I'll put little secret things into my into my plays that maybe only one person will know, and uh, and it's kind of like it's like me saying hi to them through my play. Yeah. Like it might be like the name of a character mm-hmm. that in the in the play the name of the it's just a it's just a name, but it's there's a specificity to it in my life and maybe only like one or two people might know 
what that means, but I like to embed little aspects from from my life uh, that maybe only I will notice or a couple people in my life notice. Do you ever do anything like that? Yeah, I think I, I think because we have to spend so much time with whatever project we're working on, you have to find your way in, you know? And I think that's the the magic and also the skill of, of a writer is finding your way in irregardless, especially a creative writer, you know? Um, it doesn't have to be as explicit as a name. It could be. Yeah. It could also just be thematically. Like, how can I find my way into this piece thematically? You know, um, or like with Better Call Saul, based it was just based on them, him having a brother that he cared about. Right. And that was my way into that story because otherwise I was like, what am I about to write about these guys? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I, can't, I don't know how I'm going to get into this. This is like Albuquerque. Mexico I know nothing about it I'm like <laughs> you know yeah so but I got in through those brothers because I knew about sibling rivalry and things of that nature yeah yeah, yeah. are you thinking uh, about coming back to television like are you do you, are you aspiring for that yes I am I'm working on something now in terms of like uh, creating a pilot finally and I, and it's not that I it took me so long to get here because I was doing all the theater stuff that was in me, you know. Yeah. And But now I think I'm in a place where I'm ready to sit down and switch heads and really work on this pilot that I've been writing, like, pages and pages of, like, notes about. I'm going to sit down and streamline those notes into a blueprint and then take that blueprint and create a pilot, mm-hmm. you know. So. Mm-hmm. so how they do it. That's how I do it. That's my stage. Yeah. Those are my stages of yeah. creating, yeah. What do you can you talk about what you're writing about? Uh not yet. Not uh, not yet. Yeah. But I, but I, but I will say that it's going to be um a dramedy. Yeah. Because I like I do like that a lot of the the newer shows are this hybrid of comedy and dramedy, but they're also um within the time frame of a sitcom like 30 minutes, you know. 30 minute episodes yeah. but they're not f- full one hour dramas so I do like what's happening in TV now and, and I want to write something that's in that vein yeah a dramedy yeah. yeah like The Bear have you seen The Bear I've not seen that no it's a, it's a I mean I think they call it a comedy but it's it's really a drama and it's uh, the episodes are like 30 minutes long and it takes place at a at a like a sandwich shop restaurant in Chicago yeah. The most the most inspiring thing that I've seen on since has been like a Michaela Cole, I think that's her name. Uh, I may destroy you. Yeah, stuff like that really really gets me going. Or makes me want to write TV. Yeah, yeah, something so personal, but also you know. Yeah, that series. The craft is there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I see that. I see that. Um, I'm not sure if I hit record at this point but we were uh earlier you mean we were like talking- ever like we're not recording <laughs> yeah that'd be terrible <laughs> after i already said <laughs> how i screwed that up once um but when we were talking about the playwright center earlier i can't remember if i if we were recording at that point but uh you talked about how after grad school you uh you went to minneapolis you were part of the playwright you became part of the playwright center which you're still part of uh at the time um are you like you talk you've been talking about you know uh studying the biographies of of these writers and uh you know figuring out the different paths that they took and how they got to where they are uh do you feel like uh this this has been is do you think you've been doing it you've been doing it right for you like all these steps you've been taking do you feel like you've been doing the right thing? Do you feel like, do you have FOMO? Like we talked about FOMO too. Like, <laughs> yes. are there things you, you haven't done that you, you could have, you zigged instead of zagged. And I think, I think a biography in terms of the way I've been studying biographies, of course, is this distilled edited <laughs> excerpt of someone's life. I don't, it doesn't matter how long it is. I just saw this, a relatively new biography about Martin Luther King in this bookstore near my residency in Frenchtown. And it's like 700 pages, you know, 
it's a lot of pages, but still, it's still a distilled excerpt of someone's life. So I think that there's there are these, what do you call it? There are these holes that mm. even the greatest biographer will miss and never know because they're eternal, they're emotional, they're shared with certain people. And so I think that I live within the space of the holes of a biography. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Especially as a writer, I know what writers do, even when we're writing nonfiction, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I, live, I live in that space. And I think that as long as I'm in that space, that keeps me grounded. But sometimes I have to pull myself out of that space and look at myself the same way I look at someone else's biography in order to sustain gratitude. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I have to stop and look at the highlights and even some of the emotional roller coasters and the moments that are not as great but can be distilled into into some form of triumph yeah and look at it that way so I, that's how i experience my journey in terms of my biography i don't know if that makes sense but that's if i if yeah. i'm writing your biography what what could i miss in your biography that I shouldn't miss? What could have, what could become a hole, but shouldn't become a hole? Oh, how I felt, how I felt about it. You know, how I felt walking up to the new drama uh, bookshop today after having frequented the old one when I was in graduate school and I was young and, you know, still married and, and trying. It's a different day today, you know yeah. what I'm saying? And and I look different, you know, I, I feel different and, I'm back from Minneapolis after four years and a divorce. Yeah. You know, like the feelings that are involved in that are, I think it's hard to, for someone to articulate that in writing objectively because the goal of a biographer is to be objective, but also to uh, concretize what someone's ex what someone else has experienced subjectively yeah and that in itself is a conundrum <laughs> how, how do you feel like how do you feel sitting in this in this bookstore right now i think that's a good question how do i feel i feel um a bit of a, a bit of apathy which is not feeling at all um because sometimes in a, an interview can be like rote but also because we're 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 just conversing. Yeah, it's it's a little more informal for me. So it's pulling me out of that apathy, and I'm feeling like I'm gaining another friend along my journey as a as a playwright. You know, so there's some com some feelings of camaraderie. Yeah, and we talked about some things that we could relate to before that we won't talk about. But like, there's there's that you know. So yeah. there's there's gaining uh, another perspective on something that I am experiencing right now. Yeah. So, there's some strength involved with that, so some strength. I feel some strength. I feel seen because I love the subtext, <laughs> and I'm going to have uh, an episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. How does it feel to be a playwright in this place? In this place. Here. As in, in the Jama Bookshop? Yeah. Hmm. I, 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 I'll say this. Uh, I I come in here and uh, I'm excited because I love plays and I love playwrights and half yeah. of my life is really about meeting new ones who I love and admire and sort of collecting them uh, uh, and maybe future friends like that kind of thing and also seeing their works on the shelves but then I come in and I'm like why aren't my plays here like there's part <laughs> of me that, that definitely feels that and uh, and so I come in and I I'm a, I'm a mix of emotion from my playwriting self like excitement and uh, and jealousy and also aspiration is sort of mm. how I feel mm. coming into this place and and I keep coming back like I've been here for four and a half days and I think this is my fourth time here in that Thank time you. period because it's drawing me in yeah you know what there's such a there's for me I'm I'm four years out of graduate school this about four years out of graduate school and I've been coddled I would say institutionally by like the Playwright Center the National Black Theater Art Yard so I feel blessed at this time I feel I feel like I'm in transition you know um, I feel supported mm. you know I'm here I'm here talking to you because of the Playwright Center you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying so 
I, I do feel professionally blessed. My personal life is a bit of a, um, what do you call it? It's uh, being made over is how I would yeah, say that. Yeah. But, you know, that dichotomy, I've, I've been getting used to that and working out, working that out in therapy. But, you know, professionally, I do feel blessed and, 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 I guess to to, to use Michelle Obama's word, which is not really her word, but, you know, becoming. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And and it's another stage, another phase of my life. Another phase of my life. Yeah. Do you feel like you're entering a new phase? Another act. Let's use theater terms. Another act. Do you think you're starting a new act? Absolutely. Right now? Not even a question. Yeah. 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 I'm moving back from the middle of America, back to the East Coast where I'm from. I've been there for four years and I was there during quarantine and during the 2020 uprisings. Mm. So it's like that pivotal moment you know i spent so far away from my family and it's just a new i don't even i won't even be able to probably like articulate you know like how separate i feel from that phase of of my life you know or that act in my life right now yeah yeah Yeah. what do you think about uh with regards to success I think I think that it's relative and it should be especially when you're in a in a career that is based on subjectivity and you know um I think that one has to do the work uh, of as a playwright let's be specific I don't want to say a writer as a playwright you need to know and I'm going to go back to this the biographies of other playwrights in order to really, um, I think, measure your success. And that's not measuring it against theirs, but just it gives you an opportunity to see there's a diversity of journeys here. You know, um, there are some playwrights who are immediately successful after grad school or not even going to grad school because this is a whole new thing. This academicization of playwriting is very new. But, like, even knowing that gives you an opportunity to understand, like, Oh, okay. So success is just very subjective. It's very relative. And everybody's journey is different. That's not a cliche. If you read the biographies of other playwrights, you would know that that is the truth. You mm-hmm. know, August mm-hmm. Wilson was like, I think in his late 30s, early 40s, when he when he found success with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Yeah. Like knowing that gives you more of more comfort in your journey. But mm-hmm. if you don't know that and you're just looking at the highlights, then you may feel like, you know, oh, I'm moving a little slower. Yeah, but where do you see yourself right now in relationship to your success journey? I think I think I'm where I I think I'm where I worked hard to be, you know, in terms of because I think here's the thing, though, if you are a creative and the good thing about well, the thing that I think I'm privileged about is because I'm not a first generation creative. So I understand this grind, Mm -hmm. but I think that being creative you have to have a certain amount of healthy ego because and confidence because you're really waking up and saying i'm about to create something and i want the world to pay me for it i want people to like it and i want to make a living off of it that's a very bold statement to make in a capitalistic country you know what i'm saying like it's just it's a bold statement so reminding myself of that is like a a wake up call sometimes like this mm. is a it's a bold journey although it's who i am i think creatives if you really are a creative and you're still doing it after 30 it's who you are and you're doing it because you have to do it mm. you know but reminding yourself that okay but it is a privilege to do it and it's a privilege to do it and make money you know and to be supported you know um yeah, yeah. do you have do you have specific uh markers of success for yourself not anymore not, not anymore. No, it, it probably be because after the. It's probably be because after the two plays I produced last season, those two plays about my parents and their music, those felt like life um, uh, objectives as a creative mm. to to marry what I do to what my parents mm. did my entire life, and to to actually see that up on stage and to be celebrated for it and and to have an opportunity, more importantly for them to be able to see it, and for it to not be done like when when they may no longer be here or something like that, you know? They were able to see it and and enjoy it and we were able to go out and have dinner after each show and things of that nature. That's that's a blessing. So I think because of those plays, now I feel like I'm just working. 
you know, yeah. like I'm working and that's, that's I'm coasting. That's a good place to be. <laughs> it is a good place to be. Yeah. Uh, is there is there a story or an idea that you've been thinking about for a very long time that you haven't written and you hope to get to one day? No, but I remain open. I remain open to tell the stories. And this is me doing, I'm going to quote Marshall Norman. I, I remain open to tell the stories that won't get told if I don't tell them. And that's a quote from her. And so I like to remain open that way. Yeah. Thank you, Tylee. Loved chatting with you and hope to do it again, whether on the mics or not. And I want to thank the great Jeremy Cohen for introducing me to Tylee. His new play, Shop Talk, is going to be presented at Art Yard in New Jersey on November 18th. If you happen to be listening to this in time for that, please go check it out. This episode of The Subtext was produced and edited by me. KJ Jarbo is our associate producer. Thank you to Rob Weiner-Kett and everybody at American Theatre Magazine, which is back in print and looking excellent. Go get yourself subscribed to that. Music from this episode is from Serge Pavkin Music. The theme song for the subtext is from International Pen Pal. Want to keep in touch with the subtext? Email us at thesubtextpodcast at gmail.com or you can call and leave us a voicemail. The number is 505 302 one, two, three, five. And of course, you can find us on several of the social medias. This is the end. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is Running Uphill to Smooth Criminal by E.K. Doolittle.